Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. We need to learn to take God at his word. Sounds easy enough, huh? Especially when it's smooth sailing. But in the midst of a storm, even the disciples of Jesus needed a reminder. On one occasion, he told them, let us go over to the other side. They did. En route to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, however, their boat encountered a furious squall. The sky opened and buckets of water fell and waves threatened to overturn the boat. The disciples turned to Jesus and found him sound asleep. They screamed, Don't you care if we drown? Jesus woke up, stood up, commanded the storm to shut up, and then said to the disciples, Do you still have no faith? What a stunning rebuke. The sea was raging. The water was churning. Why did Jesus scold them? Simple. They didn't take him at his word. He said they were going to the other side. He didn't say we are going to the middle of the lake to drown. Jesus had declared the outcome. But when the storm came, the disciples heard the roar of the winds and forgot his word. Storms are coming your way. Winds will howl, your boat will be tossed, and you will have a choice. Will you hear Christ or the crisis? Heed the promise of Scripture or the noise of the storm? Will you take God at his word? We're here in the Archbishop's Corner, where Archbishop Leonard Blair of Hartford will help us be strong in faith and encourage us to take God at his word. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into your space, into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you today? Very well, thank you. I don't feel cornered. <laughs> it's not really a corner. It's mm, your space. In any case, you just returned from a meeting of the United States bishops. This was your spring General Assembly? Yes, it was. And I understand you were dealing with ongoing concern about clergy sexual abuse and addressing the role of bishops this follows the, the Pope's request at his Vatican meeting in February that the American Church delay taking action to planned earlier. Can you give us kind of an update and explain the, the three-point plan that the bishops approved to address this matter? Well, yes, I guess we have to sort it out a little bit. Uh, the yeah. context is, uh, well, first of all, what is the issue? The issue is not so much abuse by priests, because that has been dealt with very effectively and decisively. And, of course, we do have to keep our uh, vigilance always up, and we always have to try to improve what we're doing. But the uh, particular issue that had come up was, what about bishops? And I can tell you that back in 2002, when the bishops of the United States enacted all of these things to prevent sexual abuse, we wanted to put in that it included bishops, but we were told we couldn't do that because only the Pope can discipline a bishop. So we, it just said clergy, uh, priests, and deacons, but it didn't say bishops. But it was never our intention to exclude ourselves from that. But nevertheless, uh, the very uh, tragic and uh, indefensible case of uh, the former Theodore McCarrick has come up, and uh, this has opened all these wounds about, and, and other bishops too, about disciplining uh, of bishops. So last November, we American bishops thought we had a solution for that, but Pope uh, Francis asked us to delay until such time as he could address it for the whole church. So there was a meeting in Rome February. 
the Pope issued a document, which is now in effect. Uh, it's a long Latin title, but the first words are vos estis. And um, so we American bishops in Baltimore uh, now have applied what the Pope has uh, said universally for the church, applying it to our own situation. And basically we did three things. We uh, approved moving ahead with our bishops' conference to see how we can put together a national phone number uh, for reporting uh, cases of abuse against bishops. Uh, and again, we already in our diocese have these numbers for priests and others mm-hmm. uh, for reporting sexual abuse. Uh, but this would be a phone number also for, and particularly for uh, misconduct by bishops. So that will be, uh, in effect, I am confident that that phone number will be available, published, and ready to go and contracted by the end of this calendar year. This is not unique to the church. Many uh, businesses, uh, corporations, universities, entities make use of companies uh, that uh, are professionals in uh, handling this and and in making sure it gets properly reported. Uh, So uh, to to the institution and to the uh, even to the uh, in the public sphere. So anyway, that that is uh, one thing. Uh, The second thing is we reaffirmed our own commitment as bishops and our own pledge uh, about our own conduct uh, to be uh, upright and in keeping with the the discipline of the church. And finally, there was uh, some steps that are given. What if a bishop is guilty of having uh, engaged in misconduct or otherwise is disciplined, that his public activities and participation uh, in the bishop's conference can be curtailed. He can be excluded from certain things. Again, you have to remember that this is because uh, all, it's, we bishops do not accept as stipulated in the things I've said because of what the Pope allowed. We bishops do not have uh, uh, over. Uh, what's the word I want to use? We we don't have any ability to impose penalties on one another. That has to come only from from the Pope. Uh, and so, all of these things eventually, this reporting and everything else, all goes to Rome. And then the Holy See in Rome directs how the investigation is to take place and, and what the eventual, eventual outcome might be. But I, I want to emphasize that all the kinds of precautions and everything that we have applied to priests since uh, 2002 uh, and deacons are now also can be applied. Uh, I mean, they always could be applied to bishops and should have been. Mm-hmm. But the problem is... Uh, th- that we see with the McCarrick uh, inst- incident in particular, uh, that uh, this left a kind of loophole or gray area that's very tragic and it's inexcusable. And I would say finally with regard to McCarrick that um, we bishops keep saying that the, the Holy See in Rome has promised to give a full report of what happened with him and hold people responsible if they didn't act properly in his case. And we are told, we are assured that uh, by the end of the summer, that should be made public. So that's where we, where we are. That's something that comes from, from Rome. Let me take a step back and ask you, at what point in the whole three-step process does Rome become aware of a An particular accusation? Is it, is it when a phone call is made to this telephone number that you were talking about? Well, let's back up for a moment. The, the telephone number is meant to provide uh, a, a, an added way for people to report misconduct mm-hmm. against bishops. But right now, forget about the phone number 
if there's any accusation of, uh, against a bishop, there's no reason why a person should not bring it forward. And uh, you might say, forward to whom? Well, the Pope has said that the proper place for this to be reported is to the um, Metropolitan Archbishop. That is to say, the Archbishop over that particular territory of the Church. So in Connecticut, I am the Metropolitan Archbishop of the dioceses in the state of Connecticut and the diocese in the state of Rhode Island. That is the metropolitan area of the Archbishop of Hartford. So, uh, th th but I want to be quick to add that it also provides that as Archbishop, I should, uh, I not should, I must appoint a layperson uh, to also get the report of anything that comes in. And we were insistent on this, uh, and, and the, the papal document provides for this, that uh, there has to be the uh, essential participation of lay people in these any accusation that's received. And now I have yet I have to work with the, the bishops in Connecticut, Rhode Island, uh, to set this up uh, properly. But I will have to designate and want to designate someone uh, who any report I get from any source, whether it's this uh, reporting phone number or any other way. Uh, I, it goes to me and to the uh, this the, the the layperson, and then I'm obliged immediately to contact the Vatican ambassador in Washington, the papal nuncio. He uh, immediately contacts Rome, and then Rome directs what immediate action is to be taken. Uh, you know, and that that would be very similar to what we would do with a priest who's accused. It would be the same kind of process. Let me let me ask you this. And one last thing. There's so many okay. little details of this. Okay. We make it clear that anything like this has to be uh, reported. If, if it is of a nature of a crime or, or some offense like that, it has to be reported to the civil authorities, too, not, not just inside the church, uh -huh. but to the police or the state agencies or whatever. The layperson that you, as Metropolitan Archbishop, would appoint, what qualifications would you look for in a person like this? Do you know at this point? Well, it's interesting. The document says that this person could even have an office in the church. Uh, in other words, they could have an official appointment to kind of a, a title for this. But it says could because some bishops, and I would think about this too, might ask uh, a person who's not even a Roman Catholic to, mm -hmm. to assume this responsibility. It seems to me that the most important thing is that the person uh, be a highly respected uh, public uh, figure uh, who who would known for their integrity, etc. So it's not an, an necessarily uh, an in-house kind of thing. Even uh, and and I think all of us bishops wanted to be a person with a stellar reputation uh, and some expertise, you know. So that's what I'll be looking for. Anything else that was addressed in this uh, spring conference of the bishops? Well, you put me through my paces with this particular one. Well, I, 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 appreciate, that, I appreciate your being so thorough in explaining this, because I, I think it's a, of great interest to the community at large, too. Well, it's a great interest to me as an archbishop, uh, too, and to the bishops of the United States, that we uh, get this uh, right and that we do it, you know, uh, thoroughly and with respect to all the sensitivities that people have about, uh, you know, lay involvement, about civil authorities, uh, and all of those things, and about holding people accountable for mm -hmm. misconduct, bishops accountable for misconduct. But we did discuss other things at the meeting. We approved a new directory for the life and ministry of our permanent deacons. 
because you know over the years these things evolve and uh, are refined so this is a directory right now in the archdiocese we are revamping our uh, program for our permanent deacons we want to improve it and to enhance it and uh, so this is a timely document for us what else did we do we approved uh, for uh, you know there's the catechism of the catholic church uh, which is the catechism for the whole church but then we also have the u.s catechism for adults published by our bishops conference mm-hmm. uh, and some of the things that uh, pope uh, uh, saint john paul said about capital punishment are reflected in there and now the things more recently that pope francis has said about that are are we also uh took into account in refining a little bit the language in the u.s catechism and the bishops approved that somewhat of a change of, of wording uh, for the for the U.S. Catechism, which is available in English and in Spanish. Thank you for that report, Archbishop. Uh, let's look at um, t- today's solemnity that the Church celebrates, the solemnity of the Most Holy Body and Blood of Christ. It's also known as Corpus Christi, which translates from Latin to the Body of Christ. This feast calls us to focus on two manifestations of the Body of Christ, the Holy Eucharist and the Church. Talk to us about the importance of this feast, if you will. Well, what could be more important? You know, uh, I, we can't emphasize enough in the world today where people think that religion means so many things and, and we live in a pick-and-choose world of beliefs and, and where so many people today are tempted not to practice their faith. You know, what did Jesus say? Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you. Whoever eats my body and drinks my blood will have life everlasting. What If you truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is divine, he is the Son of God, the Savior, then uh, celebrating the feast of his body and blood, Corpus et Sanguinis uh, Christi, uh, what could be more important than that? And I, I think the, you know, we're finding, for example, and this is told over and over and over again, that our young people are very drawn to Eucharistic adoration. Mm. That Eucharistic adoration is, and that's why I've asked, well, I haven't asked, I've told every parish in the Archdiocese that they should have at least one hour of Eucharistic adoration per week in, in each parish. It might just be after a morning Mass. It might be in the evening. It might be some other time. And it might involve, with our shortage of priests, maybe the priest will expose the Blessed Sacrament. Maybe he has other, has to do other things that it could be reposed by a deacon or even another person after an hour. But the point is that there's nothing, uh, um, to me, more important than that for the renewal of the faith and uh, for the renewal uh, uh, of our outreach to people to draw them to Christ. Because ultimately, it's not by publishing books or giving talks. It's by the living presence of Christ in, in the church's life that, that draws people, and that's what we have to do. What is your hope that this exposition of the Blessed Sacrament each, at least for one hour in each parish of the Archdiocese, what is your hope, what effect would that have on the Church of the Archdiocese? Well, a deepening and renewal of faith uh, among all of our Catholic people and uh, a, a great increase in uh, the number of vocations to the priesthood and to religious life. And I will also say a renewal and rededication to the sacrament of marriage. Because, you know, we talk about the shortage of priests and religious, but the, the sacrament of marriage is in, in, in a lot of trouble too. 
uh, and decline. You know, today, uh, many people, uh, for various reasons, sometimes out of fear or out of social uh, convention, are not even getting married. There are many people who live together, not necessarily permanently, and, uh, you know, we're, we're having children and all. This is all meant to be connected to the the lifelong bond of the sacrament of marriage. And for many people, that's no longer the case. So all of the state Christian states of life, uh, I would look for a great renewal through uh, adoration of the body and blood of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. I would be remiss if I didn't bring out one of the celebrations that we have this coming week, and that is on Saturday, it's the 29th of June, and the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, two of the Church's greatest saints. They served the Lord faithfully for decades after Jesus called each of them to follow him. Why do such great saints share a feast day, Archbishop? Well, Peter and Paul, of course, uh, were complementary to one another. You know, Peter was very much uh, uh, tied to Jerusalem, uh, although he did travel, and eventually tradition says he died and was martyred in Rome, and that's a very strong <laughs> Uh, strongly based historical uh, thing. Paul, of course, was the uh, apostle, as he says, born out of the normal course, you know, knocked off his horse from being a persecutor of the church and became the great missionary apostle to the Gentiles. So Peter and Paul together complement one another uh, in the very foundations of the church uh, at its beginning. And they both, uh, tradition says, died a martyr's death in Rome. And uh, for that reason, they are honored together as the princes of the apostles. Let's take a look now at our gospel reading on this feast of Corpus Christi, the most holy body and blood of Christ, the 23rd of day of June. Today's reading is from Luke's gospel, the ninth chapter, and after the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, and ask for your thoughts on what this gospel means to us. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to Jesus. Send the crowd away to go into the villages and country round about, to lodge and get provisions, for we are here in a lonely place. You give them something to eat. We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. Make them sit down in companies, about fifty each. And the disciples did so, and made them all sit down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. All ate and were satisfied. And they took up what was left over, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Archbishop, your thoughts on the meaning of our gospel passage on this Feast of Corpus Christi? Well, there's are many beautiful things we could say about this, but I'd like to just focus on the one thing, that how does Jesus feed the crowd? He is the divine person that he is. He could have fed them on his own without uh, any reliance on the apostles or anybody or anything else. But what does Jesus do? He takes the little that we bring that the apostles brought, mm. the five loaves and two fish, they said, this is all we have. And it is with that that Jesus feeds uh, the multitude of thousands. And I think that's a tremendous uh, lesson in that for us. You know, that 
it's what we bring, however measly and poor and small it is, that God takes to do something great, uh, that we are not uh, excluded from this, and what we bring is important. And uh, I, I think there's a whole world of lesson for, that, for us in that, in the church, in everything we do in life, where we ask God's blessing. That what we, that we have to what we have to bring, God uses, and we however pathetically small or weak it may seem to be, we should never doubt the power of God. The disciples recognize a problem. The day is getting late. The crowd is getting hungry. So they tell Jesus to dismiss the crowd so that they can find food and lodging for themselves. Jesus, however, turns the tables back on the disciples by saying, "You give them some food yourselves." Could this be interpreted as Jesus wanting us to be doers and not just prayers? In other words, do what we can to help one another. What do you think? Well, it dovetails with what I just said, that that God takes what we bring to a situation and, and multiplies it and makes it fruitful. But yes, uh, we have to... Uh, we bring what sometimes all we can bring is our poverty, you know, and our faith. Yeah. But God uh, can, God uses that. And so, you know, again, the old saying, uh, pray as if everything depended on God and work as if everything depended on us, that we have to do both. Well, as time quickly is passing us by, let's take a look at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. Peggy from Bristol, for instance, says, Although I'm aware that calling each other brother and sister reminds us that we are all children of our Heavenly Father, I don't feel this way about those who sit near me at church. To be honest, I don't even have much interest in getting to know them better. Am I expected to look at fellow Christians as my brother or sister? Well, Peggy, that's a very interesting uh, question that you raise. Um, and it is also, I think, a tremendous challenge uh, for the church in our time. Because the short answer is yes that uh, we, by our baptism, are members of the body of Christ, with God as our Father, and all of us are brothers and sisters to one another in the new birth we have, not from any mortal seed, as the Scripture says, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. And yes, so we are brothers and sisters to one another. And the challenge today is in the church, if we're going to uh, attract uh, people to Christ and his church, to be to share with us the communion of the of the faith, we have to be willing uh, to be uh, more brothers and sisters to one another. The idea of just coming to church and sitting in my pew mm. and saying the prayers and not wanting to have anything to do with anybody is not a very healthy understanding of uh, of the faith. I think the 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 challenges for our parishes, uh, without you know forcing people. But doing things to encourage parishioners to be more brotherly and sisterly toward one another. You know, the idea that when Mass ends on Sunday, uh, we see how fast we can get to the parking lot to get out. There's some times when that may be necessary. But if we, if we really shun having anything to do with, with our other parishioners, that's not a healthy thing. You know, the other day, and, and you know, communities that are more close-knit that are drawn together more, they understand this. You know, it used to be in the old ethnic days of, of uh, Catholicism in the United States that the Italian, the Irish, the Polish, the French parish, 
parishioners did draw closer to one another as a close-knit community in a neighborhood and in doing things. We still have that today with newer uh, arrivals. A couple Sundays ago, I celebrated Mass for the Korean community that have their own, what we call a quasi-parish. It's, it's a parish in formation uh, in Old Wethersfield. And I can tell you, when I go to that Mass, I know that when the Mass is over, I'm not just going to shake hands with people at the door and everybody's going to go home. No, they have every Sunday a, a nice uh, dinner together, the Korean community. And these people come from all over Connecticut and maybe even beyond. They're not just in the neighborhood. But because, see, they're drawn together by their faith and their culture. And for older communities that are more dispersed, you know, where they're not so much a parish that's just eth one ethnicity anymore, there still is an important need to have people be together and to, I won't just say socialize, but, but they, to, to participate, to somehow be connected to one another, to care for one another in some way. And that's at the heart of the Christian community. And that would seem to be the challenge that pastors and parish leaders face in building a church community, huh? Absolutely. And it's not just about the church, you know. What it was that book written some years ago, Bowling Alone, that people today, all the ways that people used to come together uh, socially uh, and for religion and everything, now people just have their cell phone in front of them and they go their separate ways and they're not, they don't necessarily come together that the way they should. This is a big challenge, and uh, there's nothing wrong with cell phones, but when it becomes extreme and isolating, then we have to, we have to look at ways to, to remedy that. Archbishop, before we end this program, I should have began the program by asking you this, but let's end the program by my asking you to comment on the ordination that took place yesterday. Oh, yes, God has blessed us with two new priests, and I'm so very, very happy about that, uh, you know, this is so absolutely important for, for the life of the church. It's essential. And um, while we, we give thanks to God for these two uh, fine men, we also pray with all our hearts that God will raise up more uh, uh, vocations to the priesthood uh, for our archdiocese. This is absolutely critical. And I have to say bluntly to our listeners and to our Catholic people that uh, the number of priests that we have is becoming very dire. And uh, we try our best. People sometimes act as if uh, I, as Archbishop, am simply supposed to provide priests for them from where I don't know, when their own parishes and their own families are not giving us any vocations. And I know there are many fine Catholic people who do pray for this and who encourage it, but there are many others who are very indifferent to it or, God forbid, even discourage uh, the young men in their family from considering uh, a vocation to the priesthood. I hear this often enough to find it deeply, deeply, deeply troubling. And I don't know what the conscience of a person can be who professes to be a believing Catholic who would dare to uh, oppose a call from God by telling a young person that, they, that the priesthood is not something that they should pursue. So, I mean, maybe what I'm saying is very stern, but it's meant to be. Uh, that this is not uh, a very uh, pleasing thing to God. And uh, I, I think that uh, we simply have to do everything we can uh, to encourage uh, our, our young men to pursue this vocation. I think we can both speak together on this same issue and say if, if either you or I had the choice to do it all over again, we would choose nothing other than the priesthood, would we not? No, nothing other. I've, I always wanted to be a priest. And I know in life today... Uh, people are called at different times of life in many different ways. Uh, but no, uh, I have absolutely no regrets whatsoever 
uh, and I, I am doing what I feel, uh, and I know, really, not feel, I know that God has called me to do. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close our program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord Jesus Christ, you have given us the gift of your very self in your body and blood in the Most Holy Eucharist. And as we celebrate the solemnity of Corpus Christi, we pray for a great renewal in the Church among the Catholic people of reverence and respect, of adoration and praise for your presence in the Most Blessed Sacrament. May you be a transforming presence in the hearts, especially of our young people, and lead many others uh, to vocations, to faithful Christian marriage, to priestly ordination, and to religious consecration as sisters or brothers. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you next week at 7 o'clock with a repeat at 11.30 right here on WJMJ Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week yourself. You too. Thank you.